And if you would take your Bible now, turn and look together at the Old Testament prophet of Habakkuk. It's possible I might pronounce it differently than you do. I might even pronounce it differently in the same sermon. Forgive me for that. It's hard for all of us, I suspect, and it's even harder, perhaps, to find. But if you're looking for it in the Pew Bibles, you'll find it on 784. Page 784, we'll be reading chapter 1, verses 12, all the way through chapter 2, verse 5. But as you're getting there, it uh, may not be that we were all together, and it's been a couple of weeks now since we were together considering the Word of God from Habakkuk. It might be good for us just for a moment to review the burden of Habakkuk. He's burdened. That's what he says at the beginning. It's an oracle, or it's a heavy burden that he feels about the sins of God's people. Their unrighteousness. He is a man on fire with the righteousness of God. And because of that, he twice complains. We're coming to the second complaint today, but twice complains initially crying out to God with this question, why don't you deal with the sins of your people? A righteous and holy God who has this people who are really off the rails in every way. How can you be righteous and let your people keep sinning? And God's answer, maybe you remember this. He's going to send a much greater evil. More or less, you think that's bad, just wait till I get done. This is often how God is going to deal with his people's sin, with something much worse. And the worse for Israel will be the armies of Babylon that will completely overthrow and wipe out Jerusalem. But even as we think about that evil, we remember This is what God has already done for us in history. We are in a new covenant because God has done this, because he has sent his son to die. The very greatest possible evil that could be done was accomplished on Calvary, that our great evil might be undone, and that God would show there his righteousness and give to us by faith in his son righteousness. But Habakkuk doesn't see all of that, and he's still reeling really reeling from this question, God, you're going to send us much greater evil. How can this possibly be? Jerusalem to be captured, the city of God destroyed. So again, he's going to complain. And this is the substance of his complaint before we read the passage. Lord, why deal with your people this way? And you and I could probably think of any number of other ways that would seem a lot better to us, couldn't we? God dealing so very rigidly, so very what apparently seems to be very harshly with my sin. I can think of better ways. Isn't God glorified in revealing his goodness? How can you be righteous, O God, if you use wickedness to correct wickedness? That's really what he's complaining about here. Habakkuk chapter chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, into verse 5 of this next chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Are you not from everlasting O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look on wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net 
and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we again would plead with you that you would open our blind eyes to behold the glory of your righteousness together with the wonders of your love. We thank you that you have not only demonstrated righteousness, you have accomplished righteousness, and you have brought righteousness to us through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so even as we read of these terrible judgments and many others that are told to us in Scripture yet to come, we rejoice that we are safe who trust in Christ. But Lord, we burden our hearts also with Habakkuk, not only for our sins, but for those who have yet to find that safety and to enter into that assurance and comfort that you offer to us here in the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would do a work here today in each one of us, revealing to us Jesus in his resurrected glory that we may by your spirit turn away from all hopes in this world or ourselves or other people and hold fast and cling to your righteous son. Hear us and draw near to us, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. It's really a complaint Not the sort of complaint, maybe your kid's whining in the car about how long it is, but this sort of desperate anxiety. What is really at the heart of God? Yes, righteousness that he would overthrow and bring a nation so great and terrible up that he would really overthrow the wickedness of his people in this way. But what about those wicked people? Now, Habakkuk is not in absolute despair. He is looking for and waiting upon the Lord, and this is what we should really always do, isn't it? This is where we ought to turn ourselves in anxiety over God's righteousness in the world. But he is anxious, and the tone is very stark. We'll look together at the question first, and then the answer. The question is in verses 1 through 12, 112 through chapter 2, verse 1. And here's his pleading, the righteous man pleading, how can you favor... The wicked, even if it's in a righteous cause. 
How can you favor the wicked even if it's in a righteous cause? Maybe some of us are familiar with different theories of ethics. Maybe you will understand when I talk about utilitarian ethics. The simple line by which it's often described is that the end justifies the means. Is this familiar? The end justifies the means. But that's to completely warp and relativize righteousness because it implies that there can be righteous at the end of something even if there's not righteous in the process of getting to the end. But our God is righteous. And Habakkuk knows this. He's not just righteous in his ends. He's righteous in his means. This is so vital that we come to appreciate this and to respect the righteousness of God in all that he does to accomplish in us his purpose. And maybe you know this. Habakkuk does, but he's really deeply wrestling. God says here, uh, Habakkuk says here of God, that God is the one who must defend his people. He must protect and keep them because of his righteousness. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. You, O Rock, have established them for reproof. If God doesn't defend his people, when great judgment comes, then that would actually detract from, it would take away from the glory of his holiness and his righteousness. And Habakkuk says, you are the Holy One. God has promised to love and defend his people. And he can't change toward us because of his own character. He can't permit us to be destroyed. He isn't just good. His goodness endures. It's adamant. He is from everlasting, Habakkuk says. He is the one who is and was and is to come. Our life is so brief. And just in the few days we've lived here on this earth, you know what it is to see your life changing and perishing and fading away. But the Lord our God is the rock. This is how he's often described in Scripture. Deuteronomy 32 speaks of him this way. Or Malachi chapter 3, 6. In another sort of way, I, the Lord, do not change. We heard this in Sunday school this morning. I do not change. Therefore, you uh, children of Jacob are not consumed. God is the unchanging, unshakable rock. Unlike us, who very quickly change and shift around and even our ideas and, and bodies change quite regularly. Because God is our rock, he's also the only source of refuge and strength that there is for us. He is, as the Psalms say, the stronghold of our life. And this is where the Christian takes his comfort and his strength. Babylon, it says, in chapter 1, verse 11, Babylon is filled with guilty men whose own might is their God. They bow down to their strength. And the Christian does not bow down to his strength. He bows down to God his strength and worships the God who is our rock. God can't change. He will not change toward his people. He must continue to love and defend his children because of who he is and because of what he's done, making a covenant with us, calling us even his children by way of covenant and teaching us to call him Father. That's what Habakkuk is really saying when he says of God, you are my God, my Holy One. Notice he doesn't just say you are God, you are the Holy One. He claims God for himself. You are mine, God. This is what a 
of really what a child says of his parents. This one belongs to me. This is my father. And this is what it means that he's a holy father, that God has set himself apart for us. He's given himself to us in love through his son. And so he's the God who endures. He's made a covenant that must endure. He must continue to be the holy and righteous one. The father of our Lord Jesus Christ must protect us from the death that is coming upon really the nations of the world. A good father protects his children from injury, doesn't he? And so Habakkuk can confidently say, we shall not die. We shall not perish. God's purpose is not to leave his people in their sins and leave us to perish forever. And here he is quoting in faith from Psalm 118, verse 17. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. And Israel didn't, remarkably. Think of Daniel, his friends in Babylon. They weren't wiped out. They did recount the deeds of the Lord. And even there, in the midst of an enemy nation, they did not perish. And so we shall not but have everlasting life who trust in Christ. And even death cannot dissolve the bond between us and our living Savior. That's safety, brothers and sisters. That's protection. And if we could see the walls that really surround this this church, not these walls, but the walls that God has put up in his own gracious giving of his Son, we would be amazed by how utterly safe we really are. But God is also a God who disciplines his children. This is what a good father does. If we sin against him, he will discipline us. And as it says in Hebrews 12.10, our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed good to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. And so Habakkuk says, Lord, I know your promises are sure. I am confident you discipline even in ways like this, to bring your children out of their sin, to bring us into holiness. And yet he wrestles with this. He really wrestles with this question, how can God use evil Babylonians? It would be better, it would seem at least, to use something good to overcome evil. How is that just? How is that right? And he even then calls upon God to take action because he is holy and righteous, to do something How can Babylon really do this so great and evil as they are? How can he refuse to look at his people, but look upon, pay regard to, show grace toward, in a sense, Babylon by lifting them up, this evil and treacherous people? How can you send them to discipline God's people and even swallow up the people of God and even those who are more righteous? Now, Habakkuk is not saying of all Israel that they're all as righteous as they ought to be at all. In fact, he's complaining about that, isn't he? He's saying, really, God, don't do this because these are your people. You are the one who is giving to them your holy law. We need to be corrected and made righteous. A little bit like Abraham, really, pleading for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is what he's doing. But I want you to notice what he claims Babylon is going to do. Swallow them up. 
This is the attitude of all those who are bloodthirsty. It's described in Proverbs chapter 1. My son, if sinners entice you, that is, if they say, come along, my friend, let's go together. Things are going to be well. We're going to have all sorts of riches together. Let's lie and wait for blood. We can get rich today. Do not consent to go with them. And so this is a, a frequent prayer in the Psalms. Psalm 35, 25. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Habakkuk asked the question, Living, true, righteous God, how can you be righteous? How can you not just reveal, but perpetuate your righteousness while the wicked are swallowing up those who are more righteous? It almost seems to Habakkuk like there is no ruler in the heavens at all because Babylon is doing something that perhaps many of you have liked to do. Babylon has become a sort of fisher of men. Now, the sort of fishing that here Habakkuk is going to speak about is not with a, a line and a pole and a, and a hook at the end, but really with huge nets that would be typically spread out. Maybe baskets lowered into the water. The fish has no idea that the basket is slowly being picked up and the water draining out. This is what he says, though, that, that Babylon has become. Babylon is fishing for the world, and the world is given over into the hands of Babylon. With a hook, with a net, he brings up the nations. What can fish do? And by the catch of the nations, Babylon is living, we might even say, the beautiful life. By them, we read in verse 16, he lives in luxury, his food is rich, he's basking in the wealth and the glory of the nations that he's taken to himself. Instead of giving glory to God, rather than doing the righteousness of God, Babylon rejoices in its destruction, glorifies its strength, shows no mercy, doesn't worship the living God. And Habakkuk knows Even in this, God's purpose is yet good to set his people right. But still there's that gnawing question, isn't there? When are you going to stop them? It has to end. Doesn't, Doesn't it sometimes seem like this to you? That the wicked just go on being wicked and maybe getting worse and worse. And the Lord doesn't do anything. But you and I know that he has to do something. He's holy and righteous. He refuses to look upon evil, Habakkuk says. If God stops resolving and destroying wickedness, he will cease to be God. All his promises will be finished. He will no longer be the holy and righteous one. So here's what Habakkuk says he'll do. In verse 1 of chapter 2. Station himself, waiting like a watchman, waiting, as it were, on the walls of Jerusalem for the message that will come, the response. This is a really kind of a beautiful and very powerful image. Think about, for just a moment, the battle of David's troops with Absalom. I'm going to be reading to you from 2 Samuel 18.24. This is at the conclusion. David didn't go out to battle. 2 Samuel 18.24, David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, 
And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. There's news. This is what, this is really what Habakkuk is expecting. This is what the prophets are frequently described as. Ezekiel is set as a watchman by God, Ezekiel 3.17 and other places. He's waiting for God to come send his message. What is the outcome of the battle? This battle, almost it would seem in the character of God, between God's righteousness and his continuing not to deal with it in the way that we at least would expect. The psalmist speaks of this. Waiting for the morning, for God's righteousness to come. What's the news? Now, this is the news. God cannot stop being holy and righteousness. But we must wait for him. We must wait for the answers to our questions. And he has given really all of the answers to us in his son. In what would to human wisdom seem like the very most unlikely means, the least probable method God has accomplished salvation by a very great evil, the cross of Christ. As it says in Psalm 118.22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. We would have rejected that. Doesn't Peter actually reject this as Jesus is going to the cross? No, don't go. This isn't for you. And Jesus says what? Get behind me, Satan. Because you do not value the things of God. That's the news. Running toward Habakkuk in the Old Covenant, and which, by God's grace, we begin now in the New Covenant better to understand through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, moving quickly to the answer. The righteous God does answer, verses 2 through 5 of chapter 2. And this is the answer, that he will judge all men by his righteousness. But he will not show favor to the wicked, only to those who shelter in his Son. There is no special favor for the wicked. This is a, a really a constant question, perhaps, in the back of our hearts. It, does it really pay to serve God? The, the prophets talk about this frequently. Think about Psalm 73. The psalmist says, My feet almost slipped. Because I was looking at the wicked and, and thinking to myself, what a comfortable, what a nice life they have. Why don't things go better for me? But you don't understand, dear friend, until you get into the worship of God, just like the psalmist. There is no special favor for the wicked. No, there is special favor. God will look upon. He will protect. He will defend. He will give life to the one who trusts in him, he will not delay to render his judgment. His law has been broken. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even Habakkuk, even you and me, there is no one righteous with the righteousness that God demands. We wait, but we wait expectant. God is coming in judgment. This is what the Lord says. To wait. Wait for this judgment. Listen to what he says to Habakkuk in verses 2 and 3. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets 
so he may run who reads it. This is a really referring to a kind of sort of classic way of classic form of writing in Babylon. Maybe if you know anything of your ancient history, think about those cuneiform clay tablets. This is what it's speaking of. You write it down, and then if you're the emperor, you take those clay tablets, make copies of whatever your message is, and those clay tablets are sent out by messengers throughout the entire the entire empire with the royal decree. In other words, write this down even in a way that Babylon can understand. Write this down so everybody gets this message because the Lord is the emperor. The Lord is higher than all the kings of the earth. He commands this news to be sent. He is victorious in this battle. Unbelief, unrighteousness will not conquer. Send out this message. And so, what does he say to Habakkuk? More or less, no, don't don't watch. Your job isn't watching. Your job is go announce. Go tell. Run with this message. Go. Be the messenger of the court of heaven. There is no passive waiting. Really, in the kingdom of God now, we have a message to declare. And that message is imminent doom. Final judgment. The testing of every man's work. And everyone being tried before the judgment seat of Christ. That is the message. There is judgment. It's not just Babylon coming. It's Jesus coming, dear friends. Why does Babylon come in the first place? Because Jesus is so concerned to bring his people out of their sins. And he will at last do that for us by coming to us on the great day. So the message is a warning. Look out. Judgment is coming. Christ is coming. And the point of it is really what we'll get to right there in verse 4. Trust in him for rescue. Because you can be righteous and safe by trusting in the Son of God. And that is, the, if you like, the towering insight that is given to Habakkuk. I don't know if you've if you remember your youthful days, perhaps, going to the library, pulling out a book, and being so pleased when you open it, and right out of the center page, something three-dimensional pops up, colorful and interesting. You remember these pop-up books? This is what this is like, really. We, we're reading through the Bible. We're into Habakkuk and kind of wrestling with these, these things, maybe feeling a little bit like you know, uh, Job and how, how difficult it is to get through. And then suddenly we arrive at verse 4 here, and everything suddenly falls into place and makes sense, not just for us, but for Habakkuk. The righteous, the just, shall live by faith. Two kinds of people. Those whom it says in verse 4 are puffed up and not upright, and those who believe and trust in their God. And the result is two ends. Life for those who will believe and destruction for those who who are puffed up. Let's walk into this. This is, again, the key insight of Habakkuk. What is faith? Well, one way to think about this is that it's the opposite of being puffed up. Babylon is the puffed up one. What does it mean to be puffed up? To trust in anything in yourself or anything in any other person than Jesus Christ. To glorify man and inflame to be something more 
than he really is. Now, maybe you've seen this before, a kind of bare self-confidence in yourself. I just trust myself, my strength, my interests, my righteousness, maybe my wealth, whatever it is I have, there's something perhaps that I just trust and that's, that's it for me. But I think more largely, we are challenged by a sort of subtle self-confidence as Christians where we will readily admit, no, I, I can't get the righteousness that I need or, or I'm not filled with the righteousness that I need. But maybe with a little effort, I could get there. Maybe I can just get part of the way and Jesus can do the rest of the way. Don't I have some strength after all? Some righteousness. There's something good about me, isn't there? That's You remember that, that line in... Uh, I, I think it's the sound of music. Somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. And this is how we feel about ourselves. Well, in World War II, maybe some of you are aware of this, there was a U.S. Army battalion, the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops. Does that sound familiar at all? They specialized in deception, and they had inflatable tanks They fabricated fake radio traffic, played phony sounds over loudspeakers to make it seem like the Americans had a heavily fortified position so the Germans would be deceived. And actually, sometimes they did move their troop positions and shell these places. It really worked sometimes. That's what our hearts are like. Ever since our fall with Adam and Eve, we have tried to clothe ourselves with fig leaves. It's like we have this field manual on deception written into our hearts. Nobody has to go home and read it You know how to do this already, and so do I. We lost our original righteousness. Yes, we commit many transgressions, and yet we continue to try to inflate and blow up and deceive with this idea. Just a little camouflage, you know? God will be pleased with the veneer of righteousness. And we deflect and distract wherever we can. We could have all been in that army unit. Now, that might have worked for Hitler sometimes. And sometimes we are impressed enough with ourselves to think that it works for us. But we have a God whose sight is far clearer. And he will not look upon sin. He knows what we do. That by nature we're puffed up, relying on ourselves, on our resources, on others, and not humbly trusting in the living God. What is faith? Not to trust in ourselves, not to put something over the top, not to try to deceive ourselves into being satisfied with where we are, what we have done, what we could do, the people that we know, the sermons that we've listened to, the churches we've been in. Faith is recognizing our true size and shape and our true need. His soul is puffed up, not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Faith has this dawning realization that I am utterly unrighteous and utterly powerless to get it. And that the only way I could ever have it is if the God who is my judge would simply Give what he commands. That's knowing your true position. Knowing your real need and going to God. (laughs) While we were living in Uganda, we would be frequently 
stopped along the road. And sometimes there would be these infractions that I didn't even know I'd committed. And something I found very effective, which may sound very silly in an American context, but it was very effective. I was told, you're going to be ticketed, you're going to be arrested, you're going to have to pay a fine. And I'd say to the officer, really sincerely, I hadn't intended to break the law. And I would say, officer, can you forgive me? Every time. Every time. I was forgiven. Now, your God is not a kind of willy-nilly police officer who makes rules up on the fly. Praise God for that. But he is one to whom you go and you can say, God, I'm so wretched. Maybe I didn't even intend to do the things that I did, but I did them. Can you forgive me? Can you forgive me in your son? And this is the good news, isn't it? No, the puffed up one is going to perish. The one who comes along and says, I don't need to be forgiven. Everything's fine here. But the righteous who come and say, I'm not righteous. I have a desperate need for a righteousness outside myself. I need my, my sins to be forgiven. I need a gift from God. They are the ones who live who survive the Lord's discipline and destruction of the wicked and possess eternal life. That's God's certain promise. Now, maybe we're so familiar with with hearing this. God, a gracious God, he'll give you his righteousness, just go to him by faith. Wonderful that these few words that really so frequently have been unclear in the history of the church are are so clear to you. But we should then perhaps ask another question. Why? And really, if we're going to ask the questions of God's righteousness, God, how could you use such wicked people to deal with the wickedness of your children? Maybe we should also end by asking this. God, how could you be so righteous? And give to us the righteousness that we couldn't earn and that we had entirely sinned against. How can you be so gracious? How can you still be righteous and not deal with us in your wrath? The reality is not one of us is righteous, not even one. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is nobody in this room Nobody who has ever lived but one who could ever say, I have not sinned, I am pure in my own eyes and in the eyes of God. God sees, God knows. Maybe you're self-defending this morning and saying, nope, that's not me. I'm a good person. And God says, no, you're not. And you look at the preacher in the pulpit maybe even say, well, you've got to be good. You're the one who's teaching us this morning. My friends, no. No. The only way to righteousness is to live by faith. This is quoted at least three times in the New Testament. Romans 1.17. In it, that is in the gospel of God, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. 
for the righteous to live by faith. And again in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37, the same thing is quoted of particularly Jesus Christ, our righteous one. No hope in God's law. No hope in your resolutions. No hope even that somehow outward discipline will affect a new heart that can do righteousness. The only means by which we can ever be righteous and acceptable to God is if God will provide it in the person of his righteous son. And we will trust him alone. There is no other hope. God is satisfied. Not when we come and boast in our righteousness and puff ourselves up and make ourselves look to be something we're not, but when we come and hold onto the feet of Jesus, the righteous one. And if God is satisfied with that substitute, if God says, that is what I'll accept, then you must too. We must no longer say in our hearts, I'll be better tomorrow, and then God will be pleased with me. You will not be better tomorrow. And that thought is one of the most wicked thoughts you could possibly have, that you don't flee to Christ for your righteousness, but say in your heart, I'll do it myself. I want you to notice here as we come to the conclusion of this section, the judgment that God will rain down on the wicked. He says of Babylon there in verse 5, wine, this is one translation of it, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. And here there's a kind of reference to chapter 1, verse 16. Speaking of Babylon, his food is rich. Wine is a rich man's food. He's drunk on it. Babylon is so happy that he just can't even control himself. This is what you do with our luxuries, our strength, our resources. We think of ourselves so highly, we're so comfortable with ourselves that we trust in ourselves. And this is exactly how Babylon falls. Think of that drunken party Belshazzar is having on the night when at last opposing forces come in and take over the city. Dear friends, we have to be dissatisfied with our resources. This sort of gluttony, this lust to say, I must be satisfying to myself. I must be satisfying even to God with what I have and what I am is the same attitude as Babylon. Swallowing up continually, consuming, consuming, even as it were in verse 5, seeking to swallow up hell and death itself. Discontent with with everything except to take it all in and get it for myself and make it mine. I remember a children's book, another children's book, have you read it when you were young? Hungry Mungry. Somebody remember that? Oh, I think you do. All right, Hungry Mungry, and he's, he's busy eating. His parents tell him to stop eating. He eats the dining room table. He ends up eating the neighborhood. He ends up eating the world, and there's nothing left to eat but himself. That's a picture of our pride and unbelief, worshiping and feeding on and boosting up and building up our strength, whether it's physical power, wealth, connections, my own righteousness, my religious proceedings, This is the nature of unbelief. Unsatisfied with what God is satisfied with. As wide as Sheol, as if 
Babylon could just swallow up hell itself. There's good news here. Evil men seek to swallow up God's people. But what does God do with them? Well, in the case of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, do you remember this story? He causes the earth to open up and swallow them. This is the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 25, verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. No, my friends, the wicked will not prevail. God has already accomplished this in Jesus Christ. His resurrection is the destruction of death while we wait for our own. I want you to just see as we come to the end here, very quickly, how glorious this passage is. It's really, I wish I could walk you into it in 3D like that book. Think of Jesus here. The persecuted one, the righteous one, surrounded, being so shamefully abused, mistreated, and killed. And we read in John chapter 2, he did not entrust himself to men because he knew what was in men. That veneer of righteousness, that outward ballooning of a kind of religiosity, doesn't fool him. He doesn't entrust himself to them. His trust is in God His satisfaction is not the strength of men, not their goodness, but God. And so we come to the cross. What appears to be the the most exultant moment of unrestrained evil. And we ask, we ought to ask with Habakkuk, where is the righteousness of God? That's surely what the disciples were asking themselves in that brief interval before the resurrection. Where is God's righteousness? Because you see, this is a much bigger conflict than just Babylon. How is God going to do good by something so evil? No. Babylon becomes a picture in the Old Covenant and in the New of Satan and his evil powers. Think of Isaiah 14. Speaking of Babylon which then is picked up in Revelation to describe our enemy. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you. The worms are your covers. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How are you cut down to the ground, you who lay the nations low? You said in your heart, puffed up, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Now, if someone asked you, why did Jesus come? You probably would have many answers. But this is one reason that's given to us in 1 John. Christ came into the world to destroy the works of the devil that pomp and fury to bring it down. He has crushed the head of the serpent and he will certainly come in judgment on all sin and unbelief. Dear friends, Jesus is raised up in glory. Jesus, the one with whom God is satisfied. Jesus coming again. The only hope of righteousness and God's acceptance for you. What must we do but run to him? Run away 
from all hope in ourselves, from a profession of faith that says, I'm pretty good, to a profession of faith that says, I have no hope in me and my past unbelief and unrighteousness and my present great weakness and sin. My hope is nothing but Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's what saving faith does. Runs away to Christ. And that is God's gracious gift to you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray, indeed, give to us what you alone can command. Give to us saving faith that rests on Jesus and his finished work, his paying the price for our unbelief and for all of our sin. Oh, Lord, we pray that as that day comes swiftly and we wait, may we herald forth and declare the good news. Yes, judgment is coming, but Christ has died for sinners. May we believe and rest on him. And as we pray in his name, amen.